so today we are reviewing the movie that just came out with Nick Cage called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And this one was a banger. It was just an all-around fun watch and very excited to be going over it today and, you know, pointing out some things that we noticed, things that we enjoyed. Um, yeah, it's The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is a pretty appropriate title considering the massive talent that is our good old friend Nicolas Cage and it's what we've kind of been building up to for all of these episodes celebrating the new age of Cage so Amos Chen here joined today by Sierra Wu and let's yeah let's get into the unbearable weight of massive talent which is Released on April 22nd, 2022, directed by Tom Gormican, written by Kevin Etten, starring, of course, Nicolas Cage, and also has in supporting roles Pedro Pascal, Sharon Horgan, and Neil Patrick Harris. So, unbearable weight of massive talent um yeah any thoughts you wanted to share before we got into the nitty-gritty plot details Sierra um let's see as far as I don't know just my overall anticipation of the movie I was really excited to see where it would go and um you know, what sort of approach they would take with this, because as you know, Amos and I are both very huge Nick Cage fans. We think he's a genius um, with his <laughs> shamanic thespian, thespianism, <laughs> I think is what he referred to it as in the movie. <laughs> his shamanic um, approach to acting. But yeah, so I was just really excited for this movie and it definitely delivered. Oh, yeah, it definitely did. And yeah, we'll probably get more into that later. And yeah, honestly, I thought it was just a very, very great encapsulation of him as an actor. Like he's in the film, he talks about how, yeah, he talks about his shamanic thespian instinct which isn't very far off from how he described his acting in real life um mm -hmm. like i think he's called it mega acting before and also um described his approach as novo shamanic which in a interview that I literally just watched before this recording, he says that the only reason he went with that is because he likes how Novo sounds because oh it's French God. and fancy. Which... Nouveau shamanic is something I came up with because I like the French sound Nouveau. I thought it had a kind of a fun sound, meaning new. I had read a book called The Way of Weird by Brian Bates, and he was putting forth the notion that all actors, whether they know it or not, are recruiting the same instincts of the early shamans in the old villages from hundreds and thousands of years ago. And I like that idea, the idea of exploring your imagination. So that's where that came from. And have you written the book yet? No. Yeah, let's get into the plot recap then. 
All right. So um, I can take care of kind of going over the plot recap and we can jump in if we have anything. And then at the end, we can, um, I guess, you know, go over the bigger themes that we noticed once our little audience is filled in on sort of the plot. It'll probably make more sense. So. <coughs> All right. So this movie starts off with a scene of a girl named Maria who is smoking weed and watching a Nick Cage movie with her boyfriend. Specifically when, Con Air, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so she's watching Con Air with her boyfriend when a group of masked men burst into the room, knock out her boyfriend, and kidnap her. Um, they're also speaking Spanish, like a Spain dialect of Spanish, so we can assume that they are somewhere in Spain. And uh, we find out later that she's the daughter of an anti-crime politician in Spain, and she is being taken hostage in order to sway uh, Spanish elections. Then the movie cuts to L.A., where Nick Cage is living in a hotel with massive debt and massive talent. He is struggling with his career after being passed over for several major films. And is constantly being pestered and tormented by Nikki, who appears to him as his younger and more successful self. He also struggles to connect with his ex-wife and teenage daughter. He auditions for a part in a Hollywood film, hoping to land a big role and revamp his career. His agent, understanding that Nick is strapped for cash, tells him about an opportunity to make a million dollars by making appearance an appearance at a wealthy fan named Javier's birthday party in Mallorca, Spain. Nick turns down the role initially, or he turns down the party invitation initially, but after being passed up for the Hollywood film role and drunkenly embarrassing himself at his daughter's birthday party, he hits rock bottom and decides to take the offer to go to Spain and perform at the birthday party and then retire from acting altogether. So just some fun <laughs> trivia stuff about that particular scene um i forgot exactly where i read this but apparently the director that he's meeting with that he really really wants the role for was originally supposed to be quentin tarantino or david lynch um but they couldn't get them to actually appear in the movie because of covid filming but the guy who does end up appearing in the movie is um, America's sweetheart, David Gordon Green, known for such acclaimed masterpieces as Pineapple Express and the 2018 Halloween reboot, as well as its sequel, Halloween Kills. But the meta aspect of this comes from the fact that apparently he also directed a film in 2013 named Joe that has Nicolas Cage in it. Do you, have you heard oh. of that movie ever? No, I haven't. Does he have to do a Boston accent in that one? I don't know. Wait, was that what he was trying to do in that That's scene? A Boston to do accent? He, he sort of cornered the director and forced him to listen to him read the, read the script. He was trying to do a Boston accent. <laughs> <laughs> there are 17 nerves in my medulla oblongata <laughs> in my trigger finger. <laughs> oh my 
my god. I thought I thought <laughs> he was just trying to do like edgy action star voice. I didn't know that was supposed to be a Boston accent. Yeah, no, he's just like in, in the movie he's like, Oh, do you want me to do the Boston accent? And the director's like, No, you don't have to and then he's like this <laughs> horrible rendition of a Boston accent. <laughs> Amos, since you're in Boston, you tell me whether or not it was uh, accurate. <laughs> it did not, like, the fact that I couldn't even tell if he was trying to do that probably answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> Although, just as a random aside, so, yeah. I always thought that, like, the whole Boston slash New England accent thing was just, like, an exaggeration for movies and stuff but then i moved to massachusetts and i was like oh my god people it's it's <laughs> Wait, an boston. actual thing they really do be parking the car in harvard yard am i right yeah <laughs> yeah they park in the car i can't even do it i just sound like i'm from milwaukee <laughs> anyway um where were we all right so we're kind of in into act two now i think so he goes to Spain and meets Javi, who is a super fan of Nick Cage. Javi is supposedly rich because he owns a lot of oil vineyard or oil, not oil, olive, olive oil, olive oil. Yes. So that's uh that's what he says makes the money, but um he does kind of get on Cage's nerves because of his neediness and sort of following him around like a puppy and he also is extremely insistent that nick read his movie script even though nick wants to retire so nick tells javi of his plans to retire from acting uh javi being played by pedro pascal who as a side note killed this role he was so good um <clears throat> so nick tells javi of his plans to retire from acting but javi in order to inspire him, takes him to the cliffs and does a sort of almost like childlike play of, oh, we have to escape the general and jump off this cliff with me. Nick is a little bit annoyed at first, but then, and asks him, why are you doing all this? I told you I want to retire. I'm not going to, you know, do this Stanislavski bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, <clears throat> Javi tells him that Nick Cage's acting career means a lot and brought brings joy to an increasingly dark world in which Nick sort of rediscovers his I guess um reason for acting and he believes that oh if I keep acting I can make the world a better place oh yeah they're yeah they straight up just do an improv bit when they're yeah. at the cliffside like what's the what's the thing they're What's the thing that Javi does? Oh, yeah, he's like, he's like, the general wouldn't want me to marry his daughter, so now he's sending men after me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's super, super cute. <laughs> and, but, yeah, so, anyways, they jump off the cliff together into the water in a leap of faith that, you know, acting is a worthwhile pursuit. Then they spend the rest of the day bonding over their Mutual love of movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Paddington 2, surprisingly, which they both cry at. <laughs> and so after their day together, um, Nick says he'll read the script. Javi pulls it up on his notes app and Nick realizes it, it's kind of garbage, <laughs> but he, he does really enjoy being friends with Javi. 
Yeah, so, the script's um, so bad that yeah. <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris, who's his agent, literally didn't even send it to him, I think. Yeah, like, yeah. when Javi mentions it, it's the first time that Nick Cage even heard of it because he sent it to his agent first, and then the agent was like, yeah, this is, this is shit, man. I'm not even going to forward this over. Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway... So, um, now that they're BFFs, um, Cage is having a good time with Javi, um, and he's excited, you know, to spend time with him and be a guest at his, at Javi's birthday party. However, he's confronted by CIA agents, Vivian and Martin. Vivian is played by Tiffany Haddish, and Martin is played by that guy that looks a lot like, uh, Mark Wahlberg, but is it Mark (laughs) Wahlberg? (laughs) I had to look him up, and I'm just like, is that Mark Wahlberg? But it's not. It's a different guy. Beloved character actor, Ike Barinholtz, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mike Barinholtz. <laughs> <laughs> the, resemblance, the resemblance is uncanny. It's it's grotesque. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so he's confronted by the CAI agents, Vivian and Martin, and they suspect that Javi who they claim has made his fortune through arms dealing, not Olive Groves, is behind the kidnapping of the girl at the beginning, Maria, who is the daughter of an anti-crime politician in Spain. They claim that he kidnapped her in order to swing the elections, uh, forcing that politician to drop out and putting a more crime-friendly politician in his place. And... Although Cage doesn't want to help the CIA because he's sort of bonded with Javi and due to his shamanic thespian intuition, uh, he doesn't believe that Javi is actually capable of being a crime lord. Uh, he says that as a as a actor, it's his job to read people and he has read Javi and doesn't think Javi is capable of that kind of thing. He decides to help the CIA anyway because um, they sort of tug on his heartstrings and say, oh, well, you have a daughter the age of the kidnapped girl. How would you feel if it was your daughter that was kidnapped? So he begrudgingly decides to help them. Yeah, they basically emotionally blackmail him. Like, <laughs> um, I think literally the line they say is, every time you look at your daughter, you'll see that little girl if you don't do anything. Yeah. It's kind of played for laughs when there's that whole sequence of Nick Cage and Javi bonding over the fact that they both like the Cabinet of Caligari and Paddington 2, which unironically is the unexpected emotional core of the movie, which (laughs) we'll probably talk about more, but Paddington 2 makes both of them want to be better people just because of its sheer wholesomeness. Um, But the larger point is that the phrase like this movie is a love letter to cinema or like the power of cinema is kind of a cliche, but that's kind of a lot of what this movie is about. There's a lot of pivotal plot moments and character beats that center specifically around movies like right before nick cage decides to join javi's um random improv bit uh javi says something about how 
his acting is a gift to mankind. Um, like you were saying earlier, it makes an increasingly darker world a better place. Um, and then at the party, the thing that basically makes the thing that basically seals their friendship is when Javi gives this really emotional speech about how he bonded with his dying father because they watched guarding tests in his hospital and that's the reason why he's such a giant Nick Cage fan because um it helped him bond with his father and also another thing that makes him want to be a better person apparently so yeah yeah he said he he didn't really see eye to eye with his dad until they watched that movie together and that's why you know nick cage is his acting is pivotal and changes lives <laughs> the cia after they send uh or after they speak with nick they have him go and rig Javi's security cameras during Javi's birthday party after that whole speech. <laughs> and they also ask him to <laughs> they ask him to figure out a way to spend more time on the compound so that he can try and find where Javi is keeping Maria. There's also I think it's worth it's kind of funny. This is an aside, but when he's rigging the the cameras, he accidentally gets some kind of tranquilizer poison on himself and he almost dies. But Vivian, in order to sort of snap him out of it and get him to inject the antidote, you know, she just yells action and then he springs back to life, which was so funny, you know, and like an otherwise really serious sort of action tropey moment. <laughs> she just yells action and that's what sort of spurs him on. So I just thought that was hilarious. It just really paints like this character of Nick Cage, maybe not the actual actor, but definitely the character as sort of like a melodramatic um you know actor type who's very <laughs> i don't know it just it was just really good uh as far as character development i mean given the way that he talks about like his his views on acting and like his approach to it in some of the interviews i was looking at like it's definitely an exaggeration but i would not be surprised if it wasn't that far off from reality yeah that was that was a fun moment um yeah so after after he successfully uh realized himself he goes back down to Javi's party and announces that he will not be retiring and in fact he will be collaborating with Javi on a film which they will be writing together so this is kind of his excuse to stay on the compound for a little longer and help the CIA. Javi is, of course, thrilled about this. And the next day, he decides that they should take LSD together to sort of get the creative juices flowing, which <laughs> it results in like a really fun um, just sort of like chase scene where they're running away from people who aren't chasing them just because they're on drugs. And they decide that the movie... This is where it also starts to get meta. They decide that the movie that they're going to write together is going to be about the relationship between Nick and Javi. And that's also kind of what the movie itself ends up being about. Yeah, it's a it's a adult serious character drama for adults. 
Oh, another aside, something that I thought was pretty cool or, um, yeah, kind of cool on a meta level is that a lot of the scenes where they're running away from people while on acid, um, specifically the scene where they're trying to very melodramatically climb over the random stone wall that they end up that um hobby ends up walking around like a lot of those scenes were in the trailers for the movie but they were they were like played straight in the trailers basically like showing them as actual action scenes instead of these two guys being on acid and um <laughs> thinking that people are chasing them, which is a pretty fun subversion, I thought. Um, yeah, also very meta because they, um, this is jumping ahead in the plot, but when they're talking about making the movie, they also talk about how, yeah, it's a emotional character drama, but we need to throw in some we need to throw in some random pointless action scenes so we can put it in the trailer and get those people in the seats to watch our serious drama for adults. <laughs> Which is exactly what the what the real life movie did. So this movie is very meta, not in the sense of like how the Matrix is meta, but it's meta like unto itself. Yeah, it's basically like a Birdman film and also like kind of like Bojack Horseman with the whole like self-absorbed semi-washed up actor thing, except it's a lot less dark than either of those works. Yeah, definitely. It is It is a fun movie and it doesn't get you depressed, even though it does deal with similar themes. So anyway, they do, they go on their little acid trip where Cage... Um, when they when they get back from their little their little montage, um, Javi falls asleep in the car and Cage starts poking around trying to find where Javi is keeping Maria. However, um, he comes across a locked door. Javi ends up coming up behind him and saying, "If we go through this door, you might not see our friendship the same." And sort of like you thinking oh you know is does he keeping maria back here but it turns out it's just a shrine of film mem- memorabilia <laughs> including a full wax sculpture of uh nick cage as caster troy alongside the two golden guns that he had in that movie yeah this scene was in all the trailers but it's pretty it's still pretty funny to watch that whole exchange go down in the in the movie. Yeah, I think the line is like Nicolas Cage sees the whole figure and it's like, oh my god, that's grotesque. How much did you spend on it? And Javi's like, oh, six thousand dollars. And then <laughs> Nicolas Cage is like, I'll give you twenty thousand for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is grotesque. I'll give you twenty thousand. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, that I actually laughed so hard when he did that. It's such an amazing, like, self-aware joke about all the random stuff that Nicolas Cage 
blows money on, like, <laughs> dinosaur skeletons and, like, gothic castles in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, um, Cage, after this interaction and the discovery of the shrine room, he starts to find it even harder to betray Javi. But the CIA agent Vivian convinces him to work a kidnapping into the movie script so that he can sort of pick Javi's brain and see where Javi would hide Maria if he if it um, is the case that he kidnapped her. Uh, Cage, however, thinks this is a bad idea because he thinks that Javi will sniff him out and he goes through with it anyway. But Javi interprets this as Cage being creatively blocked and sort of a cry for help. He thinks that Nick is incorporating this kidnapping plot because he has some sort of repressed guilt about his daughter. And so Javi flies out Nick's daughter and Nick's ex-wife to the villa so that they can make amends. However, Nick, thinking that Javi might actually be, you know, a kidnapper and a drug lord, or not drug lord, but arms dealer, sees this as a sort of intimidation tactic. So they all have tapas and Nick Cage tries to make amends with his ex-wife and daughter, but they reject his appeal and accuse him of prioritizing his career over his family. Javi, in the meantime, while they're having this meeting, goes to meet with his cousin Lucas, who is revealed to be the true arms dealer and the one who kidnapped Maria. So it turns out that um, Javi's cousin Lucas is the one doing all the arms trading, whereas Javi is just sort of the front man. And he was completely unaware that Maria had been or that Lucas was the one who kidnapped Maria. Lucas then warns Javi that Cage is working for the CIA and betraying them, and he pressures Javi to kill Nick Cage, or else Lucas will kill Javi. We were talking about this, like, before recording, but a lot of the, um, a lot of, like, the jokes and bits in the movie center around faking out the audience about Javi actually being the big organized crime boss, and then it turning out to be something completely innocent or like a miscommunication or something so yeah that's one of those things where they probably could have cut down on a few of those jokes since i think i remember you said that they don't really land that well if you watch it already knowing that he's not the actual gangster boss yeah, I mean, it does sort of drive the tension of the movie, like, it it helps create tension, but, like, once you know that he's innocent, it's sort of, like, it feels not as necessary, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't completely fail, it just, you know, paints Javi's actions in a different light, so it, it doesn't have that much, the tension comes more from you knowing that Javi's innocent, rather than, you know, not knowing whether or not he's innocent. So is it more like a dramatic irony type thing instead of just like, is he or isn't he the crime boss who kidnapped the person? Yeah, it turns more into like a dramatic irony, but it still it still does the job of creating tension just in a different from like a different standpoint. So I think it I think it does still work even on the second watch. It it doesn't completely fail as well. I don't know. I think it I think it's still really. It was still, like, just as enjoyable to watch it the second time. Okay, well, that's the important thing, I guess. 
just too bad they didn't put that scene where they filmed a bunch of famous Nick Cage scenes in German expressionist style. Yeah. Yeah, maybe the director's cut or like they'll have some sort of actor actors extra scenes when the DVD release comes out, but we'll see. <laughs> so anyway, now that Javi is tasked with killing Nick and Nick is tasked tasked with taking down Javi um under the assumption that Javi is trying to kill his daughter and his ex-wife. Cage and Javi have a face-off against each other. I see neither... what you did there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but neither neither Cage or Javi can bring themselves to kill the other. And they admit that they love each other as bros. But they don't say the bros part. <laughs> I love the man. And he's like, I love you. So I don't know. It could be it could be a bro comedy or it could be a romantic comedy. However you want to read it. <laughs> Honestly, the way we've been talking about it makes it feel a lot like a romantic comedy, especially since like I don't know. I haven't seen that many romantic comedies to be honest, but I feel a lot of them revolve around like um zany miscommunication moments like these. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> It definitely has, like, vibes of, like, The Notebook or, like, uh, Silver Linings Playbook. You know, these, like, quirky, imperfect people bonding over their shared quirkiness. But anyway, they can't bring each other to kill one another. And they're like, I love you, man. I love you. And they also switch shoes for some reason, which was, like, extremely endearing. (laughs) Oh, wait. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, they do. Yeah, that was super cute. He's just like, I like your shoes. And he's like, I like your shoes. You want to trade? <laughs> just trade shoes. That was so cute. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a rom-com then. Because, like, yeah. that is a complete rom-com move. Just, like, mm-hmm. randomly switching shoes. Yeah, that was super cute. But, yeah, so they they also end up being chased by Lucas's men because Lucas knew that Javi probably wouldn't kill Nick Cage. So they run away and race back to the house to discover that Nick's daughter has been kidnapped. They pick up Nick's ex-wife, Olivia, and Javi's assistant, Gabriella, and they all make a dash to the CIA safe house, only to discover that Vivian and Martin have been killed. Um, With Javi's help, Nick and Olivia pose as a reclusive Italian criminal couple to get close to Lucas oh and my get into God. compound. That yeah, entire so. <laughs> sequence. We we need to pause and talk about that. Yeah, can we please? <laughs> okay. So um the basic premise is that the reason that Lucas kidnapped the Lucas kidnapped um the Spanish politician's daughter was like we said earlier, to get him to drop out of the election, but it was also to basically prove himself to this um, legendary Italian crime boss who he wants to start working with. Um, But the thing is, no one's seen this guy in 15 years which means, according to Javi, that no one knows what he actually looks or sounds like. And mm-hmm. luckily enough for our 
brave heroes, Nick Cage's ex-wife, it turns out, used to do makeup and things for movies. So they basically put on loads of makeup and prosthetics on Nick Cage to make him look basically like an old Italian football coach. (laughs) (laughs) Complete with like... Complete with like a tracksuit and like everything, and like <laughs> it's so good. He really does look insane. And he, then his uh, his ex wife poses as Barbara from Santa Barbara, which is kind of like you know the Italian trophy wife. Oh yeah, I forgot she's Barbara from Santa Barbara. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, like... just, he just plays this like hilarious caricature of an Italian man. <laughs> yeah, he just walks in with. Like the most ridiculous Italian accent. Like <laughs> um, it's so it's it's insane, but it for the movie it works. <laughs> Just showing off its range. Yeah. <laughs> he um yeah, he becomes a dude playing a dude playing another dude. Yeah. <laughs> so good but yeah so um they walk in and although lucas is a little suspicious he ends up um you know letting them into the compound and they sneak into the basement in order to find where maria and Addie are being held another pretty funny part about that is how basically no one actually suspects that the infamous um reclusive Italian crime boss is actually Nicolas Cage because another fake out when he first gets to the compound where Lucas basically like puts him in a chokehold and threatens to kill him but it's not because he thinks that he's not who he really is it's because he thinks that the reason that he showed up was to kill him. Olivia sort of gets them out of the situation by being like, oh, well, if you're going to kill him, you would have killed him already, so let's just get down to business, which is really cool, you know? Like, she she, she took, like, the role of crime boss wife seriously, <laughs> whereas he was just this cartoonish version of, like, an Italian mobster <laughs> dressed as a football coach. <laughs> <laughs> I respect you, Barbara, from Santa Barbara. Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, anyway, they locate Addie and Maria. However, they're found out. And Cage is held at gunpoint. Or no, no, no. Cage ends up holding Lucas at gunpoint, allowing Addie, Olivia, and Maria to escape. But then he gets stabbed by Lucas and... Basically, it's a no-win situation. He's about to be shot, and then he delivers his Boston accent line, which just throws everyone off so hard that he he confuses everyone so hard that he's able to sort of grab the gun and, like, you know, uh, switch, do a little switcheroo situation and escape. (laughs) Oh, my God. That scene was so amazing. It's, like, it feels like such a stereotypical action standoff at first, even with Lucas holding the gun to Nick Cage and saying, oh, any last words, 
Nicholas Cage, and then he <laughs> said, and then in response, Nick Cage says, there are, it takes <laughs> under three milliseconds for the brain to transmit a signal to all 26 finger, 26 muscles in my trigger <laughs> finger, which means that before your bullet fires, your medulla oblongata will be splattered on the wall behind you. And if that's the last thing I do on God's green earth, then I will have lived happily. Ha, 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 ha. And it just, it's just so off-putting and bizarre that they're like, what the fuck? And then, and then he's able to grab the gun because they're all so, like, confused. Yeah. It throws off, yeah, it throws off all the mob people so much that he's able to just, like, grab someone's gun and shoot all of them. It's the yeah. power of acting, folks. <laughs> yeah, uh, most of us really, you know, start meta-acting meta or mega-acting. What was it, mega-acting? Yeah. <laughs> they gotta start incorporating that into, like, Navy SEAL training. <laughs> Can you imagine how scary, like, a Navy SEAL would be if they were able to act like that? <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I mean, isn't there that one scene where he talks about how, where he talks about how doing espionage and spycraft is basically the same thing as acting? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's like acting, acting for your life, you know, instead of just acting for other people's entertainment. <laughs> wow, that is definitely a way to... That is definitely a way to describe it. Yeah. But anyway, so they make their big escape. Um, Cage, Addy, Olivia, Maria, and um, Javi all race to the American embassy with Lucas in pursuit, which is, you know, the big blockbustery chase scene that they put in the trailer, you know? Wait, is that the scene where... Javi says, I know you run fast because I saw you in National Treasure, or was that an earlier oh, scene? That was earlier when they were running away from um, Lucas's men, like when they first confessed their love for each other and then started running away from Lucas's men. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I know you can run fast because you did all you did all your stunts or whatever in National Treasure 2, I've seen you run fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that scene now. It was like, um... Yeah, he's like, I saw you, I saw you run in National Treasure, and then Nick Cage is like, that was a stunt double, and he's like, no, I know, because I watched the DVD extras. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so good, um, but let's see, yeah, I mean, so anyway, I... um, <laughs> Lucas holds Cage at gunpoint once they burst into the embassy, but Addy tosses Nick a knife which he uses to take out Javi. And then it transitions into them watching the movie that we just watched, but with different actors. Um, and then Cage and Javi are at this movie premiere with Cage's family. And Cage is applauded for this new film and congratulates Javi before going home with his family to watch Paddington 2, <laughs> now with a better relationship. Yeah. 
because the true message of the film is that Paddington 2 brings people together. Yes. But yeah, we also uh, watched Paddington 2 just to, you know, have some more context on this movie. And Paddington 2 is basically about how fighting for innocence is always worth it, you know, and it's always important to like, no matter the circumstances or no matter, you know, how hard your life has been, it's always, you know, fighting for innocence, despite the odds, is the right thing to do. And that that sort of, I think, thematically ties into this movie because for Nick Cage, a lot of his passion for acting is like a very childlike, innocent passion. And I guess his sort of childlike love for acting takes a toll on his family because, you know, it's hard to show up as a father if you yourself are behaving like a child all the time. But it just shows that, like, you know, innocence has its time and place and it still is worth worth pursuing. And, like, in this movie for Nick Cage and for Javi also, acting and movies are how they express and embody that sort of joyful, youthful innocence. It's also how they end up connecting to their loved ones is through movies, you know? Yeah, like, it's basically the representation of the evolution of Nicolas Cage's relationship with his daughter because at the beginning of the movie, she complains about how he keeps making her watch all these old German expressionist films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and that symbolizes how he doesn't really, really love his family because he's very self-absorbed and just wants them all to be extensions of himself. So when he watches Pennington 2 at the end with his daughter, the that's significant because it's the movie that his daughter actually wanted to watch. So, you know, it's the whole thing about letting your kid, like, be their own person and still loving them for that. It's a very cool way to represent that. And also Paddington 2 is a very amazing movie, apparently. The Dark Knight of children's film, I believe, is what (laughs) they call it out on the Twitter streets. (laughs) Yeah, the production in Paddington 2 is, like, I know this is getting off track a little bit, but it feels like a Wes Anderson movie, but less kitschy. You know, like, it's actually, the animation is very artistic, and the integration of, I guess, the CGI and the real life is just incredibly well done. And it's just a kid's movie, which, you know, they could have not taken seriously and just been like okay this is you know people are gonna watch this because it's a kids movie but just like nick cage they gave 150 percent to this movie even when they didn't have to so (laughs) yeah it's all right we can we can just do a quick impromptu witcheroo where it turns out that this was actually a paddington 2 podcast the entire time (laughs) Yeah, you guys, you guys got roped in by the action thriller of, <laughs> of the unbearable weight of massive talent, but really, this is a Paddington 2 promo. 
<laughs> yeah, it's we're using the action to get people to watch a to get people to watch a serious character drama for kids. Yes. Um, exactly. But yeah, the Paddington 2 references is actually really intentional, apparently. Like, I'm looking at a interview with the Hollywood Reporter um, with the directors and the main writer for the movie. And um, Tom Gormican, who's the director, says that the... Paddington 2 reference was one of the first things that they wanted to put in the film, stating that we're just big fans of that film. The only identifiable flaw is that it does not have Nicolas Cage in it. Oh my god. (laughs) The movie was not just a celebration of Nicolas Cage. It's a celebration of making things, of making movies. We thought that this movie should feel like what it means to celebrate that thing. And Paddington 2 is such a great example of a perfect emotional and hysterical film for us. We just wanted to include it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this movie is like a fun, you know, just like a fun watch overall. And it does, I think they, it does have like a very strong emotional core to it. Which makes it, I think, very rewatchable, because it is. It does sort of have that feel-good effect that um, Paddington Two has. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the main screenwriter Kevin Etten in the same movie talks about um, when asked what moment on set remained particularly meaningful you meaningful to you, he says. It's the final scene where Nick is with his daughter and they decided to watch Paddington 2 and Nick gets really emotional. I found myself getting emotional and I looked over and I saw these old grizzled crew guys getting emotional. I went, oh my god, this guy is very good at acting. He's not saying anything. He just started crying. Oh my god, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, man. Um, Paddington 2... I don't know. Does it make you want to be a better person, Sierra? It makes me want to, you know, treat people around me with more empathy and, like, find more joy in everyday moments. So I guess, yeah, it does make me want to be a better person. <laughs> How about you? What was your take? I know we watched it um, not in the best state of mind. <laughs> I don't know if you remember from that movie. <laughs> but... Besides just, like the general wholesome vibes and the cinematography and production design that did not need to go so hard. I think the only things I really remember from the movie is like the end when we came up with our big Christ metaphor thing. And then yeah, Paddington was in a coma for three days and then you were just like, wait, is, is this a Christ metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I and then I missed like most of the beginning because I was too engrossed with playing with your cat. So yeah, yeah. I, was it the white one of, or the? So that's kind of the mindset that we were in when we saw yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, my cat uh, also enjoyed Paddington too. <laughs> he was he was getting plenty of belly rubs. <laughs> so. 
Well, but yeah, that was it was good stuff. Um, as far as you know, our final thoughts on this movie. Um, I guess there was some cool meta stuff in there, you know, casting Pedro Pascal as a drug lord because he was in Narcos. That was kind of interesting. But yeah, Pedro Pascal, this is also sort of an aside, but he he's really good in comedic roles as well. Like a lot of his early career was very serious stuff. And even up till recently with The Mandalorian, it's all been very serious um, action drama kind of stuff. But he's really talented as a comedic actor as well. Have you seen, like, that one video that's, like, Pedro Pascal and Oscar Isaac interviewing each other? Yeah. Their little bromance. I love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He's a... He's a funny dude. Like... Yeah. I'm very surprised that no one's, like, really tapped into that before now. I mean, I guess, like, Wonder Woman 1984, but based on what I've read about the production of that movie, I think... I think, like, all the comedic parts from his character were him making it up and or not intended by the um, directors and producers of the film. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people also were saying that, like, Pedro Pascal was the best part of Wonder Woman 1982. He was, though. <laughs> if you just replaced him with, like, generic superhero villain actor like that movie becomes even worse than it currently is because like (laughs) the movie just like swings between boring and incoherent and like the only parts that aren't boring is when pedro pascal is hamming it up as um (laughs) 1980s bombastic con person who is definitely not meant to resemble anyone who was also known as a bombastic con person mate mainly in the 1980s and 1990s. <laughs> yeah, any other thoughts you wanted to say, observations about the movie, etc.? Um, let's see. I guess um as a a final bit, like the end of our episode, our final take, our final hot take is the question of is this a recagesance or an on cage in encore <laughs> i was trying to make it funny <laughs> so is this basically like is is he trying to revamp his career with this movie or is it kind of just an encore of his best works and he's gonna you know settle down um i don't know what do you think um let's see i think that it's probably just an encore, you know, of his iconic works. Um, I could see him getting, showing up in, like, very large blockbuster movies in, like, really small roles. And people will be like, is that Nick Cage? Like, I could see him getting getting some pretty, some small roles in, like, big movies, you know? But I don't think he's going to do any sort of, like, big projects for a while. So it does feel like, just from the vibe of this movie it sort of feels like this is a resolution to his career and yeah just it just feels like an encore yeah well in the reddit ama that he did a couple of weeks before the movie came out he did say that he would be down to um he said he would be down to make some sort of sequel or spinoff to face off or 
do some sort of Marvel role. Um, may or may not be a Ghost Rider sequel slash spinoff. It's just that I no one has cool. just that no one has like approached him about it yet. Basically. Well, hopefully this movie will change that. <laughs> Your Ghost Rider spinoff. That would be pretty great. <laughs> yeah, like the only of all like the sequel questions they asked in that Reddit AMA, the only one that he didn't that he completely shot down was National Treasure. Mm-hmm. Which is too bad. Um <laughs> Oh, unrelated, but in another in like the same interview with the writer and director, apparently there's another deleted scene where Pedro Pascal's Wi-Fi password for his house is National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. His character, I just love his character so much in this movie. He's he's like I don't know, like very adorable. <laughs> He just seems like a very, like, innocent, sweet little fella who happens to have a cousin in a crime mob or whatever. There's one comment from here that basically he said that he thinks his hardest role is playing um, himself. Because since, like, he's not really, like, playing himself like Nicolas Cage, the real-life person, he's... He's playing, like, the meme version of Nicolas Cage, basically. Like, there's the younger version of himself, Nicky, that he's hallucinating throughout the movie. That's, like, like even more over-the-top memefied. But even, like, his character in the film, like, we were talking about how he's being portrayed as this, like, self-absorbed, self-serious actor who's out of work and like it's in massive amounts of debt and and then has to do a bunch of really absurd stuff um so that's kind of like the that's also sort of like the public image of Nicolas Cage so Mm -hmm. it's like balancing like all those different um personas with each other is a yeah it's pretty trippy to think about just from the perspective of like actually going in and doing it yeah especially like you know you know trying to understand how other people see you and then play that that's already really hard to do in general I think but yeah this movie just it was so good 10 out of 10 I really enjoyed it (laughs) Yeah, like, it would have been very easy for this movie to not be very good. Like, um, a lot of the, especially online promotion for the movie, was basically just saying, hey, Nicolas Cage is playing Nicolas Cage. Isn't that so funny? Ha ha ha. It could have just been, like, a two-hour-long bit on that, essentially. But, but like, even with all those, like, meta acknowledgments and jokes like it's still a it's still like a pretty 
well-made movie at the end of the day like yeah because they they did put time and effort into you know making it an actual story not just a haha it's nick cage isn't that funny you know movie reviewing cliche but there's a surprising amount of heart in the movie um especially with like his relationship with his family and the whole kind of romance with pedro pascal yeah it was just like super cute and I also think it's kind of, like, interesting, like, you know, like, when you meet a friend who sort of, like, gets you like that, you know, there was that line in the movie where he's like, oh, we could have, you're the kind of person who I could see or not see for years, and then we could just pick up where we left off. That, that like, very heartfelt sort of thing was, really got to me. It was really sweet. Um, Going back to the whole thing about them basically bonding over liking the same movies, like, mm-hmm. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um... Like, it's, on face, it feels like a very egotistic Hollywood thing to do because they of how much they love doing things like, wow, look at how powerful movies are and important yeah. to people. But there's, there's a kernel to truth to that, like, to get, like, very sentimental and corny for a moment like that is what happens with a lot of people like we bond over the things that we like um and um we talk about our mutual interests and things like that and movies are such a giant part of what shapes um our culture and even to an extent how we view the world really that yeah like the whole idea of oh um i restored my relationship with my daughter because we watched paddington 2 together or like guarding tess is what brought me closure with my dying father like Yeah, to an extent, it's kind of exaggerated for comedic effect, but movies do have the power to bring people together. Or, like, if not movies, then, like, anything that's, like, a common shared experience that a group of people like. Yeah, and, like, even with us, with this podcast, it's kind of meta, too, because, like, we haven't really seen each other since middle school, but, like... We started this podcast, and now we're, like, watching movies together all the time and hanging out all the time. It's really cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely... Oh, my God. Yeah, we are the meta example of the power of cinema. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Do you think... Do you think watching Paddington 2 brought us closer together, Sierra? That's the real important question. I think it did i think it made us both better people <laughs> even though we don't really remember what happened in that movie <laughs> i think that pretty much covers everything i wanted to say about that but thank you guys for listening um if you haven't yet please go and see the movie it's fantastic and uh as far as any other projects i have going on um not really but amos do you want to talk about anything you've got going on um yeah, Starbucks Workers United, which is like 
unionizing for coffee shop workers. Um, can just Google all those. I won't get into it too much. Um, I also finally made a Twitter account that you can follow at a singular most, all one word. I don't think I've tweeted anything yet, but um, yeah, finally making the jump to having actual public-facing social media. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that's all my stuff, I guess. Um, yeah, also watch Massive Talent, like Sierra said. It's a great movie. Deserves to have way more box office receipts than what it's currently at. I mean... 16.7 million on a on a 30 million budget like let's try and let's try and at least get it to how much the budget was you know um yeah. and let me cage at least break even he's got <laughs> yeah mansions to buy <laughs> <laughs> and uh watch Paddington 2 and be a watch Paddington 2 and enjoy the um wholesomeness of the adventures of Christ metaphor stuffed animal <laughs> bear. Is he a stuffed animal bear? I actually I do not know anything about Paddington lore. That's yeah, he's like a he's like a stuffed bear, I think. Okay. I'm not I'm not sure how he's been animated, whether it's been through like dark magic or just the power of friendship, but <laughs> <laughs> definitely one of those. <laughs> Yeah, go and watch the Dark Knight of children's movies, folks, which Flaming Hot Take dropping, I would say, is better than the actual Dark Knight. Wait, really? Bombs dropping sound effect. That's true, actually. The Dark Knight is a little corny if you actually watch it for, like, cinematography or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, Sierra, you got anything you want to plug? Um, not really, other than, you know, if you are ever in the Alexandria, Virginia area, and you are itching for some ink, hit me up at Old Town Ink. Um, I'm on Instagram as neon.alchemist, and, uh, yeah, I do tattoos, so if you, if you want to, you know, meet me, the disembodied voice, put the disembodied voice to a face, come through. <laughs> And you cannot meet me because I am just a ghost that floats around the underbelly of Boston who also talks about movies occasionally. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah, we actually record this podcast on a Ouija board. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm gonna that's... I'm gonna move the planchette to goodbye so we can end the episode. But thank, <laughs> you, for, thank you for contacting me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably as good a place to end as any. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for joining us in our celebration of the age of cage. Thanks for spending a hourish in a Nicholas Cage cage. <laughs> and yeah hope you 
liked it and tune in for our next episode whenever we decide to record and push it out. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. And cut. You know what? I'm gonna read. Uh... It's a foregone conclusion, Jimmy! It takes 13 milliseconds for the human brain to send a message to the body. So by the time your bullets hit me, my cerebral cortex will have transmitted a signal to the 17 healthy muscles that operate my trigger finger! Uh, Nick, you don't have to. Or your asshole has had a chance to pucker up. Your medulla oblongata will be splattered on the fucking wall behind you. And if that's the last thing I accomplish on this beautiful green earth, then what a way to fucking go! (laughs) 